My name is Janet. I'm one of the pastors here at North Langley. And um, yeah, Pastor Matthew, who was with you with us last week, is on a spring break trip himself. So he's on his way home and be praying for him. But it's my privilege to be here with you. And I just want to add my welcome to that of the worship team um, who led us so amazingly in worship this morning. Really grateful to them. Thank you, Debbie. Um, and I also just want to say welcome to those of you who may be new. Maybe you're taking the time at spring break to check out church, and maybe you've been invited by a friend, or you're new to Christianity, new to following Jesus, or exploring faith, and we're really, really glad you're here. So welcome here. For those of you who've been with us, um, you may know that we're traveling through the Gospel of Luke, and it's a wonderful journey to be on with Jesus. And we are in Luke 13. Um, we were in Luke 13 last week with Pastor Matthew talking about Sabbath and how Jesus fulfills the Sabbath, Sabbath rest. Um, this week, uh, I have a little object lesson for you just to get started. Oh, and just to add that, you know, um, the prayer room is open. I will not be offended if you get up at any time to go for prayer. That is a wonderful thing to do. Or if you're going to the bathroom, that's okay too. But um, Anyway, let's start with a little object lesson here this morning. I have two bags, and this may feel like Sunday school if you're familiar with growing up in Sunday school. Anyway, good start here. There's two things in these bags. One, mustard seed, another, yeast. Now, some of you know exactly where we're headed <laughs> in today's sermon. But mustard seed and yeast. So what do these two things have in common? You don't have to give me the Bible answer. You can just, biology is good too. What do these two things have in common? They're both small, yeah. They're both small. What else? You shout it out. Yeah, they both grow, yeah. Given the right conditions, both of these will grow. They have great potential, don't they, to grow. And we're gonna learn about that today. You know what someone in the first service said? They're both in bags. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> hadn't thought of that. That's great powers of observation there. So, okay, mustard seeds and yeast. What are these all about? Well. And like I said, we're in Luke 13, so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn there, and we're in verses 18 to 21, and they'll be on the screen too. But this is our passage today. It's all about, you guessed it, mustard seeds and yeast. So Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew, became a tree and the birds perched in its branches. Again he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And these are Jesus's words. These are Jesus's words that he spoke to his followers, to his disciples as they were gathered around. What is the kingdom of God like? Well, mustard seed and yeast are the two sort of object lessons that Jesus gives us, and I don't know if I, you can relate to one more than the other. I kind of have a, a, more, of a, more of a familiarity with the seeds. Some of you who know me love, I just love planting things. I love 
growing a garden, I love taking a seed, any different kind of seed. It always fascinates me to look at a seed, whether it's a cucumber seed or a marigold seed, and to actually hold in my hand this small thing that has so much potential. And that everything contained uh, in that, that that plant, you know, uh, has to, to produce, say, a cucumber into a, a cucumber vine, growing more cucumbers, is there in the DNA of that seed. It's almost magical. You know, like Jack and the Beanstalk? You, well, that's a fairy tale. But it's almost magical how a seed, when it's planted, grows. Now, I, I know there's photosynthesis and germination and all these things, but in Jesus' day, the science of horticulture wasn't very well developed, yet they knew that seeds planted gave results. Now, the yeast, uh, I'm not as familiar with, obviously. I'm, I'm not a baker. The funny thing is, my husband is, like, just since COVID, he started baking bread. <laughs> like, he got on the bandwagon, and he bakes bread. He actually doesn't use this stuff very often, you know, this dry yeast. When he cheats and uses a bread maker, he does. But I got to just say, I'm kind of proud of him. He has this starter, you know, this sourdough starter that he babies and feeds. But he takes a bit of that, yeast, leaven. This would be like Old New Testament times, right? He take, that's what they mean. They didn't have this. They had like some kind of a starter. And he makes, uh, Rob makes amazing sourdough rye bread. So good. But again, does Rob know the science behind yeast baking? Maybe he does, you could ask him. Does he know that you know, yeast plus a little bit of sugar, it grows, it produces CO2 gas, which makes the bread rise? And I don't know, I don't know it. But I mean, in Jesus' day, they didn't know microbiology. They didn't know that yeast were these single cell organisms and such felt like a bit of a magical thing, you know, when you tuck the yeast into the dough and see it rise, and they did it every day. These were two everyday, common, familiar images that Jesus uses to do what? Describe the kingdom of God, something that's kind of difficult to understand, if I'm honest. And these two images were like twins, you know, two things uh, actually Jesus is using it to make one point. Well, actually, they're more like fraternal twins, like my nieces, because they aren't identical. But still, Jesus is putting them together and saying, here's what I want you to know about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Those two terms are used interchangeably by Jesus. So Jesus used parables. He used stories, illustrations all the time to talk about the kingdom of God. Listen, it was his most important topic. He taught it everywhere. It was his go-to message. The kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven is mentioned more than 70 times in the New Testament. So we should have ears to hear too, not just Jesus' followers and his audience in the day, but we too need to understand what he's saying about the kingdom of heaven. So maybe we should ask God to help us, right? Let's pray. God, thank you for being here this morning by your spirit. Thank you that you, your words speak. They speak to us today. They're true. God, help us understand. 
this amazing invitation to be part of your kingdom and what that means and how it works. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So, like I said, kingdom of God, difficult to grasp. It's not like Jesus gathered everyone around one day and said, okay, 2.30, TED Talk, kingdom of God, 30 minutes, you're going to get it. Like, clear definition, and you'll have it for good. No. I mean, even in the book of Acts, you see the, the disciples, after Jesus was raised from the dead, saying, so, Jesus, when are you going to bring in this kingdom? And, like, what? I haven't gotten it after three years? But we struggle with it, too, right? We don't really have kingdom language. I mean, I, I don't have a concept of kingdom, except, you know, remnants of fairy tales and kingdoms or visiting a castle that was part of a kingdom or something like that. But God's kingdom is not a physical place. It's not a territory. It's not a people. It's not, a, it's not the church. I like Matthew's description. He says, and he said it last week, the kingdom of God is how God is putting the world back together again. I'm going to use an image of a broken cross. And God's, that's his heart for the kingdom. Wherever he is, he's putting the world back together again. I also was looking at a kind of a helpful way of understanding it. And sometimes we may have heard it like this. The kingdom of God is the reign of God, which means it's where God has all authority and power to accomplish his purposes and his intention. But here's the tricky part. Because God loves us so much, his great love for us, he actually allows each one of us to have our own little kingdom, our own kingdom, which is actually defined as choice and free will. And because God loves us so much, he allows our little kingdoms. Now, God could have demanded allegiance to his kingdom. He's all-powerful. He could have created us in some sort of robotic way to conform to his kingdom, but he didn't. Rather, he, desi he, he, he desires from us relationship. And that relationship is a shared relationship of love by choice. That's a beautiful thing. But our little kingdoms, they resist God, don't they? And that freedom comes with a price. Our entire world, you know, from generations past till today, is made up of little kingdoms at war with God and at war with each other, bringing disunity, broken relationships, bringing fighting and fear and competition, and self-sufficiency, and loneliness. Little kingdoms at war with God and with one another. But Jesus came. And when Jesus came, he came to demonstrate and to teach and to show this is what the kingdom of God is like and invite each one of us to surrender our own little kingdoms and say, Jesus, I want to be apprenticed into your kingdom. So today's parable describes this really important aspect of the kingdom. Jesus is saying, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? Essentially, he's saying, how does the kingdom operate? Jesus explained the kingdom lots of different times and in different ways. Who can enter? How to find it? How to pray for it? But here, the question is, how does it operate? 
Now, Jesus' listeners weren't like us, necessarily. They had a really well-developed sense of kingdom. That's because they were expecting the kingdom to come. They were expecting the fulfillment of, of the kingdom of God on earth. They, were, um, they knew God's promises back from you know, their ancestor, King David, and they believed that God would establish his kingdom rule on earth. They were praying for that, and they believed that it would show up by the overthrow of Rome. A Messiah would come and overthrow Rome, and God's rule and reign through Israel would be established on the earth. They knew what kingdom was all about. So can you imagine their confusion and their, their just downright disbelief when Jesus is using parables about seeds and yeast to describe the kingdom? A small seed, a pinch of yeast, like, what are you talking about, Jesus? This looks like nothing that we thought. And they needed to hear these illustrations and these descriptions of the inbreaking kingdom and how it would operate. Why? Because everything that they had observed and seen up to this point looked pretty small and not very impressive. I mean, Jesus, the person they were following, this itinerant preacher who taught in these backwater villages in Galilee, which is a minor Roman province, actually, it was not what they were expecting. Jesus had been thrown out of his hometown. He had called to himself these mostly uneducated uh, disciples. There was no overthrow of Rome in sight anywhere, as far as they could see. And can you imagine just thinking, Jesus, like, when are you going to kick it up a notch? This really isn't what we were expecting. Some of you know that we were in Israel, just got back a few weeks ago. Amazing trip, something we've always wanted to do. Um, and so one of the highlights while we were there was a hike up to this precipice called Mount Arbel. And from that height, we could look over the northern, whole northern section of the Sea of Galilee. We were about 800 feet up. And it was kind of surreal, you know, looking at, down at Galilee and the whole region there and thinking, whoa, this is where Jesus spent nearly three years of his ministry in this place. And what struck me was every, you know, sometimes you have these mental images of what things look like or should look like as we read and get familiar with our Bible stories. And I just thought, it's so small. <laughs> like, distances are so short. Like, I can, I can see these little villages. I can see the Sea of Galilee. It's a lake. You know, this was a small patch of land in the Middle East. But Jesus spent three years here primarily talking to his disciples about the kingdom of God and what it would look like and what he was all about. So they needed to hear over and over again, actually, this is the kingdom. This is how it will operate. And guess what? We need to hear it too. Why? Because we also doubt. We also get discouraged. If we're honest, we lose hope. We forget the big picture. This week I was in my apprentice group, which meets on early on Tuesday mornings. And, um, you know, one person in our group actually was uh, uh, being quite honest and vulnerable. And she just said, you know, I have to tell you, I feel like I'm losing hope. I'm losing hope for this situation or this, re this, um, 
circumstance. I've been praying for so long, and I just can't, I can't, I can't see how it will ever be different. And I was just like, ugh, she's, she's articulating exactly what I'm feeling too. Like, God, where are you? Where are you? I have been praying and working, and I don't see you. Is this how your kingdom comes? So we need to hear this too. A small seed and a pinch of yeast. How does it work? Well, first a farmer plants a small mustard seed. Now a mustard seed is less than a millimeter across and likely it was the smallest seed that they were familiar with at the time. He tucks it away in the earth and he waits. And meanwhile, a woman takes this little batch of yeast or starter and she too mixes it into her dough. Now the Greek word for mix is actually encrypto, which means to put into, to hide, and she too waits. So the kingdom of heaven, the seed, the yeast, they're tucked away, they're hidden, they're unseen, but we know the potential is there, right? Just because we can't see it or we have to wait for it. Mustard seeds could take years to germinate if there was a drought, but then rain and poof, up they come. It doesn't mean God's not working. This is just the mysterious and hidden way of the kingdom. But what happens next? Growth. Growth happens. The mustard seed's transformed into a tree, and the yeast works its way through the dough. And we read this and think, great! What a lucky farmer! You know, he's going to have this spicy deli mustard to put on his kosher all-beef hot dog and, you know, wrapped in a warm challah loaf right out of the oven. Perfect. But wait, did you know that mustard is considered an obnoxious weed in Israel? Like when we were there, it had rained, it was spring, and mustard was popping up everywhere, like on the rocky hillside. It's everywhere. And spreads through like this root system, it's really hard to eradicate. In fact, the Talmud, which is like a Jewish commentary of lots of add-ons to the Old Testament, the Talmud actually gave rules and regulations for how you plant mustard in your garden. Because it self-seeds everywhere, and once you have mustard, you always have mustard. It's pervasive. It's unstoppable. It's like Jesus would have said, so a farmer took a wild blackberry shoot and planted it in his garden, and we would, we would understand that. What? <laughs> You're never going to get rid of that. Well, in the same way, the yeast, it permeates what? The entire dough. It transforms it until its work is done. Many times over, yeast multiplies um, every 90 minutes it doubles. So it's expanding, it's growing, this inner working that almost seems supernatural. So Jesus was using these two images in a similar way to teach one truth. Nothing will stop the living, powerful kingdom from growing, reaching, transforming everything and everyone it touches. And the result? This mustard seed grows and becomes a tree. For what? For the birds to come and perch in it. Now, mustard doesn't usually grow into trees, although mustard plants along the Jordan River with a good water supply can grow eight, ten feet tall. You can see here a picture of a mustard hedge. The point is not necessarily how large it is. The point is that this growth is 
like a mustard in seed into a tree. It's unnatural. It's unexpected. And because of that growth, guess what? It can provide this place of rest for birds to perch. Now, this image would have been an immediate link for, link, uh, for Jesus' listeners to a prophecy in the Old Testament, several actually, but likely Ezekiel 17. It's like a hyperlink because his listeners were very familiar with the scriptures. And in this place, Ezekiel 17, it's recorded the prophet Ezekiel says, God will take a cedar sapling representing the people of Israel. And verse 23, on the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Listen, birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. His hearers would have clearly understood this imagery. How will the kingdom of God operate? It will be a safe place of welcome. Now the birds of every kind represent the nations coming and finding rest and family and safe shelter. Wouldn't be a stately cedar though, right? Here's the paradox. It's a humble mustard bush. Now the results of a woman's day of baking, did you catch how much flour she was using? 60 pounds. Some of your Bibles may say three measures and you're like, how much is that? It's 60 pounds. 60 pounds is enough bread for a village, 75 loaves. It'll feed a multitude. Again, it's unusual. It's an unusually large amount. When we were in Jerusalem, I was just so taken by the bread. I mean, it's an art, and there were bread carts in all the markets, and here's one in Jerusalem. The bread's amazing and tempting, but 75 loaves? Again, God's kingdom is meant to be shared, not kept to ourselves. There's an invitation to be filled and satisfied and fed. Just like last week, God's kingdom invites everyone into spiritual rest, right? Sabbath rest, again, depicted by the tree with the birds. And God's kingdom also invites everyone to come and be fed. Jesus fed the 5,000. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. There's this universal reach to God's kingdom. It, it includes everyone and all are welcome. That's part of these parables. So what do we need to hear today? We need to hear a few things. The first one is, don't get discouraged. It's good to be honest when we do. It's good to talk about it, get prayer. But let's not be discouraged. Let's not feel afraid or, or unseen when your contribution is small, it feels insignificant. Don't quit. Don't give up. Keep planting. Persevere in prayer. Be faithful when nobody's looking. Show up. Be consistent. Be kind. Yeast is small. Yeast is unseen, yet it permeates everything it touches. Do you see the picture? But the challenge is we, we kind of, if we're truthful, we kind of long to be noticed. We long for what's big or influential or important. So how do we embrace small things rather than just resisting or uh, resenting kind of the limitations of our life? Well, sometimes I go back to people who have lived before me for inspiration 
And um, usually they've passed on, which is also part of looking back and seeing what their lives show us. And one of those people that I'm drawn to from time to time is named Amy Carmichael. She was born in Ireland in 1867. She ended up as a missionary in India. But Amy Carmichael was not the ideal, typical missionary. When she was 21, she heard Hudson Taylor speaking, and Hudson Taylor uh, was very well known at the time. He, he had a, a big ministry, China Inland Mission to China, and of course, Amy was inspired, and so she signed up for the China Inland Mission, and she was rejected. Amy was very small in stature, barely five feet tall, and she suffered chronic, severe, lifelong illness, so they rejected her. Later, she tried to go to Japan as a missionary and was sent home within a year because of her illness. Well, on her own, she felt God call her to India. So she went to sail to southern India, and she just began working on her own with poor lower class, lower caste girls, many of whom had been forced to become religious prostitutes in the local temples. She just simply began taking them in, providing a home, and making a place where they could belong. Soon uh, after, Amy Carmichael su suffered a really serious fall, and she was bedridden for the rest of her life. But she wrote dozens of books, and in them, she reveals this deep walk with God. And part of her understanding of how God works was her emphasis on being faithful in the little things. Her challenges and her obstacles were immense, but she wrote this. Sometimes when we read the words of those who have been more than conquerors, we feel almost despondent. I feel that I shall never be like that. But they won through step by step by little bits of wills, little denials of self, little inward victories, by faithfulness in very little things, they became what they are. The seeds planted, the little bit of yeast, it will grow. And just like Amy's life, her smallness, her weakness, were almost a paradox of how far-reaching the results would be. I mean, she had no idea when she boarded a ship for India what her impact would be like, but she started with one child. Where do you find yourself? Where have you been placed? In your neighborhood, your home, your church, your workplace, your school, your retirement community? Where's God put you? Where does he want you to plant seeds in others? Obedient and small things in our unseen lives, surrendering you know, our own little kingdoms, right? In the ordinary places of life, in our parenting, in our daily schedules, in our choices. These are the unseen places where God can begin to work in us and we can plant seeds in others. Tish Harrison Warren is an Anglican priest and she has written a number of books. One, Litur Liturgy of the Ordinary, is quite, um, quite good. And this phrase has always stuck with me. We tend to want a Christian life with the dull bits cut out. I'm like, I can relate. Like, give me a Christian life with the dull bits cut out. I'll take the exciting, mountaintop, noticeable things, but the dull bits, no thank you. 
Like even in our own church, right, we do things together that are amazing and beautiful and, um, you know, that are, 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 are helpful. Like there are Single Moms Days coming up very soon, and, and we, join, we join arms and we, we uh, serve. We host community funerals. We invite hundreds of kids to camp. All these things are really amazing ways that the church as a whole can, can care for others. But really more compelling is actually just the quiet, ordinary goodness of the community, of the Christian community, caring for people week in and week out, bringing a meal, praying, visiting in the hospital, just faithfully supporting sponsored children around the world or missionaries. The other day I sat with Rebecca. Rebecca leads our Syrian friends team. Um, and I asked her what these verses meant to her. She said they meant showing up for Mustafa Ahmed's grade school basketball game just because he asked. You know, ministry to our refugee families is seed planting throwing another baby shower, sitting with the families when their oldest brother passes away from cancer while still a refugee in Lebanon, finding the confidence to pray out loud around a dinner table, always wondering, though, God, are you working? I'm not sure I see it. Are you, is what we're doing making a difference? And sometimes you feel like, we may never know, God, where, how are you working? Stephen Garber writes, in the daily rhythms for everyone, everywhere, we live our lives in the marketplaces of this world, in homes and neighborhoods, schools and on farms, in hospitals and businesses, and our vocations are bound up with the ordinary work that ordinary people do. We are not great shots across the bow of history. Rather, by simple grace, we are hints of hope. Well, I, I kind of want to be a great shot, you know. <laughs> But we're not, generally. What we are are hints of hope, small seeds, pinches of yeast. So don't give up. Don't be disappointed when what we see is maybe not what we think the kingdom looks like. Be faithful. This leads to another hazard in our understanding of how God's kingdom operates. And I could get a gold medal in this one. I really shine at this. Um, we have an overwhelming tendency to judge, be critical, and evaluate negatively. We judge our own efforts. We judge the efforts of other people by what we can see, by what's in front of our faces. And worse, we can judge God's power, and essence, in essence, his character, based on just what we can see. We think, if God was really in this, this would be different. If God was really in this, there would, I, could, I would be able to see some results. If God was really in this, you know, whatever it is. But the results are up to him. It's God's work. So we trust the way he's working. And we resist the urge to judge based on what we, in our small, you know, corner of the world or our mindset can see. We don't judge. We don't give up hope. You know that song? Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. God, you don't. 
Um, this week I got a letter in my email from Pauline Hakala. She's one of my real-life heroes who happens to still be alive, thank goodness. Pauline and Marco, they are lifelong Bible translators with Wycliffe, and they studied at Trinity's campus, and while they were there, they, um, they were part of this church. So they're home on furlough at the time now, but she was writing asking for prayer. She says, we just want to let you know we're heading out on a road trip tomorrow from Calgary, traveling to Nevada in the States. That's a big road trip. She says, over 30 years ago, a lady, Barb, signed up to the Bibleist People's Prayer Project. That's a tongue twister. The Bibleist People's Prayer Project, which was recruiting people to commit to praying for people groups who did not have a Bible in their language and where work had not yet begun. Barb signed up to pray for the Koso people. But it wasn't until years later that we arrived in Mali and translation began in two of the Koso languages. Some years later, we were given Barb's name and address. We were amazed to hear that someone had been praying for the Koso all these years. It's an amazing feeling to be part of the answer to someone's prayers for an unreached people group. A couple years ago, we got a message from Barb and her husband saying they were coming to West Africa and they would like to visit us. We were delighted to get to meet them at last and show them some of the answers to their prayers in Bible translation and to have them meet some of the new Koso believers. Their visit was a great encouragement to us. Jesus repeatedly said the kingdom of God was not coming in the way that people were expecting, rather the the kingdom would come in humbleness, in sacrifice, in a couple in Nevada, praying for the Koso people to one day hear the gospel. Luke 17, 20 to 21, Jesus says something unusual. He says, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. This was shocking to his audience who believed that the kingdom of God would be observable. Everyone would see it, center stage. And yes, there is supernatural growth, but the power is in the seed and in the word. The power is in the way the Holy Spirit works, multiplying, unseen. The kingdom will not grow through crusades, through fighting, through popular talk show hosts, or even celebrities talking about God on TV, or political means. I was so disheartened yesterday. I saw the headlines of the BBC, and it described these messages that were being worn on T-shirts of thousands of people at a rally, a rally in uh, Waco, Texas. The headline, God, Guns, and Trump. And I was just like, ah, what a distorted message. It's so unlike the kingdom of Jesus. Listen, we can't force God's kingdom, but neither can you stop it. And thankfully, neither perversion or opposition will stop God's true kingdom from advancing. And this should give us so much hope. See, shortly after Jesus was resurrected and returned to heaven, the apostles were arrested. They were brought before the Jewish council, which were the Jewish leaders at the time, the council, and they were actually sentenced to death. I mean, talk about the end of a movement. They were sentenced to death. But this well-respected Pharisee got up from the council, his name is Gamaliel, and he said, look, everyone, listen. He said, we have seen this before, different movements, you know, 
um, sort of riling up the people, and, you know, he gave advice to the council. It's found in Acts 5. He said this, So my advice is, leave these men alone. Let them go. If they're planning on doing these things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them, meaning this movement will be unstoppable. And who would ever have guessed that within a single generation, after Christ's death and resurrection, Christianity would spread to the known world, from India to the east, Ethiopia to the south, Britannia to the west, nothing would stop it. In a 2022 census worldwide, those self-identifying as Christian were 2.5 billion. I was recently reading an article in Christianity Today, and it was about the extraordinary growth of the church in Nepal. In Nepal. So 50 years ago, they could count barely 500 believers in the whole country. Today, it's close to a million. And we are witnesses. We get front row seats, right? We have uh, missionaries in Nepal, Nepalese nationals, uh, Jesse and Naresh, and they are sending us reports of baptizing people and church planting. It's so exciting. This builds our faith. We can have faith. We can walk by faith. We do know the end of the story. We can trust that God will make all things come together under his kingdom. One day, it will be evident to all, to every person, because Jesus promised to return again. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. But um, I imagine or I can imagine that some listening today may be feeling full of doubts or struggling a little bit. Maybe you find the gospel message just hard to understand or hard to believe. Maybe you find yourself even doubting, is, is Jesus real? Or his death and resurrection, the reason we celebrate Easter, does it matter? Maybe your questions are a little different. Maybe you struggle believing that following Jesus is actually worth it. Like, it feels like my life is getting more difficult, or circumstances are uh, getting more challenging, and this is not what I signed up for. Maybe you wish things were different in your own life or in the life of those you love. Maybe your children or grandchildren, people you love, friends, they haven't decided to follow Jesus yet. Maybe you feel alone in your marriage, in your singleness, in your workplace, in your school, and you've been praying for years, and doubt creeps in. And if you're honest, you feel disappointed with God. Maybe you're finding it hard to believe, these promises that Jesus talks about how the kingdom grows. Well, did you know that yeast was also used by Jesus as an image, a picture of something that could be invasive or corrupting. You see, yeast can go bad. And if it did, it would infect the entire batch. And Jesus warned his disciples of something that was kind of hard to understand, but he said, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. 
the religious leaders. And what did he mean? Well, the Pharisees just loved to have this outward display of, um, you know, the good life, uh, upright, um, leading what they considered to be, you know, examples in their communities. But in reality, their hearts were full of unbelief towards Jesus. And that unbelief could spread like yeast in a lump of dough. And I think Jesus might be saying, be careful. Be careful about giving in to an unchecked and multiplying yeast of unbelief or skepticism that can literally invade a person's thoughts and change their heart and spread to others. But the good news is Jesus loves us. God cares for us and he wants to meet us in our questions and our doubts in our lack of faith even and his invitation is for all remember it's a tree that provides shelter it's food that gives nourishment to everybody the bread of life it's jesus himself so here's my encouragement maybe it's time to challenge your unbelief don't give in to it bring it to your life group or to your apprentice group be honest Exercise your faith muscle, maybe even this morning. Come for prayer. Did you know the Aldergrove campus is starting Alpha next week? What an awesome place to take your questions and your doubts. And look for the small ways that he actually is speaking or making himself known to you. Believe that he is working, that God is working. Again, Tish Harrison Warren says, the promise of the resurrection is also that Jesus is still at work today in our lives in the present tense. So we wait, we watch for the coming kingdom when God will finally set things right, but we also wait and watch for glimpses of that kingdom here and now. These small seeds, these pinches of yeast. We don't give up. We won't lose hope. We won't judge results by what we can see literally. We'll choose to have faith that God is working. You know, my apprentice group didn't actually end up in a discouraging and hopeless place last Tuesday. One person reminded us of God's faithfulness, of his care for us, that we don't grow weary, that we believe that God in faith is doing things that we can't see, and we sow, she sowed seeds of truth into our little group, and we prayed together. It was a really good reminder that I need help to walk this kingdom journey, to believe the gospel every day. It's good news. And Jesus in his own life said, unless a seed dies, it won't produce life. That's a paradox. How does the death of Christ accomplish our salvation? Well, it's humility and glory. It's power made perfect in weakness. It's not the way we would plan. But this is the kingdom way. And Jesus said, what is the kingdom like? To what shall I compare it? These two common things, seeds and yeast. And every time we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we are reminded, Lord, this is the way you operate. And you showed us this in your death, in your resurrection. So as we prepare for the coming weeks, we're heading into Good Friday and Easter Sunday, the cross, the resurrection. Let's keep these images in mind. A Savior crucified, 
a seed being planted, dying, a hidden tomb. But nothing could stop the power of God to raise Christ from the dead, defeating death, defeating sin, and giving salvation to all. So may we find just such, such real hope and faith and assurance that, God, you are working, and you are still inviting us into your kingdom. And may we accept that. May we also join him in the way he operates and not lose hope, not give up. We're going to go into a time of worship here, but also a time of prayer. If you were reminded of things that you have been sowing into, planting for, for years, circumstances, people, and you would like to pray with someone about those things, do come forward, visit our prayer room. We would love to pray with you. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for these words. Thank you for reminding us of how your kingdom operates because we do lose hope. We do uh, get, get discouraged by what we just see sometimes. And yet help us to see the big picture. Help us to see where you are working, God. Help us to see that because you raised, were ri risen from the dead, Lord Jesus, you reign with power and glory and majesty. Help us recognize that and to get our eyes off of just the, the small things and onto what you are doing in this world. Give us hope in that, Lord Jesus, but also help us as we continue to persevere in the things that we are bringing before your throne every day. Jesus, thank you for your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.